prophecy of Ezekiel, chapter 33, from verse 1 to 9. <coughs> Ezekiel 33, the first nine verses I'm going to read from the New American Bible. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people, and say to them, If I bring a sword upon a land, and the people of the land take one man from among them, and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming upon the land, and he blows on the trumpet, and warns the people, then he who hears the sound of the trumpet, and does not take warning, and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. Now as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel, so you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn that wicked from, uh, to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require from your hand. But you, if you on your part warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. Well, now, this evening we come to this uh, um, very important matter of soul winning. Soul winning. I won't say anything more in the way of introduction because uh, there's so much, really, in, in a practical way and we want to confine ourselves as far as possible to the practical side of things. However, there are one or two thing, matters I think we ought to underline uh, in connection with soul winning. First of all, there is the need uh, to win souls to Christ. The need to win souls to Christ. There are dying multitudes all around us without Christ, and without hope. If we do not tell them or win them, no one else will. I remember some years ago we had one of those rugged pioneer missionaries, Mahari, uh, who was out with C.T. Studd and indeed was the one who looked after him in his last uh, years and his very last illness. And I remember one of the first things she ever said in this company when she stood up, she was only a little lady, but uh, full of uh, grit and granite, 
And uh, I remember she said, there is a famous hymn that says in one of its verses, waft, waft ye winds the story. But she said the winds have never wafted the story, though many evangelicals have very much wanted the winds to do it for them. She said it takes two feet, two hands, a body, and one mouth to waft the story of the gospel to those who do not know Christ. And that is absolutely true. That is the need to win souls. How shall they believe if they have never heard? If we do not tell them or win them to Christ, who else will? We are, by the grace of God, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. On this earth, we are his hands and his feet, his lips, his means of expression to this world. Through us, he meets them. You remember how the book of Acts begins, Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. Alan, there seems to be something wrong with this microphone. It's <laughs> bouncing back. There must be some. You're amplifying somewhere, not recording. Oh, it's you. I'm sorry, it's you. It's okay. Um, Acts 1, uh, uh, verse 1. The former treaties I made, O Theophilus, concerning all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was received up. Now, just note that, began both to do. Now, <clears throat> uh, Luke is referring to the gospel which he's already written. And he said that gospel is the record of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. The book of Acts is the story of the continuation of all that the Lord Jesus uh, uh, was doing and teaching. It was the continuation of his work, the continuation, if you like, of uh, his uh, teaching. Now, that is the secret, really. That is the church. The church is not an institution. The church is not an organization. It's not even a congregation, just an assembly of believers. The church is to be like your body is to you. Your body is the means by which you express your personality. The way that you get things done. If your head wants you to take a glass of water, it's your hand that does it and takes it to your lips. If you want to express some way to somebody that you want them to come, you say, come. Your hands do something. You express something through your body. Uh, we all express ourselves through our bodies. We express our personality. We express our will, our mind, through our bodies. Now, uh, the church is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we are, in this sense, the hands and feet and lips of our Lord Jesus Christ upon uh, this earth. We are to be just that in Richmond. We are to be the means by which Christ is known and seen in Richmond. They can see no other Christ. 
the eyes of their hearts have not been opened to see the Lord Jesus Christ. The only Christ they will see is the Christ in your eyes and the Christ in your body and the Christ that touches them through your hands, the Christ that comes to them through your feet. Uh, that is the only Christ uh, that they will see. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth, you are like a letter written by the Spirit of God, read, made manifest, and read of all men, a letter from God. That's what the church is meant to be, a letter from God. Uh, a, a, a communication from God. That's what a letter is. A letter is a means of communication. You communicate with someone through a letter. The church is to be a communication of God. And the only communication Richmond can ever know is really virtually through the uh, members of the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, through us here who live in this locality. A very solemn responsibility therefore rests upon every member of Christ's body. This is not just a matter of preaching, uh, but of witness, of being involved in the purpose of God to reach this world and call out a people for his name and for his glory. Um, you see, very often we, we feel that this whole matter of soul winning but is really a matter that is uh, largely to do with specialists. We feel that there are specialists in the church. There are those who are specialists and soul winners. They are those who can lead people to Christ. And we normally think of it in terms of the preacher. And in many companies, it's the pastor. The pastor is everything. He does everything. He is everything. He is the church, virtually. There is nothing else. Everyone else is but an appendage, an appendage, uh, a kind of platform for his ministry. There is nothing else to the church but the pastor. And uh, we've got so into this mentality that we even are happy to have an evangelist come to us to do the whole work for us. Preach the gospel counsel souls, win them, lead them to Christ, bring them to Christ, and then go off. Done the job, and we're very happy that the church membership has increased. Uh, that there are many more who found the Lord, if we're living at a higher level. Uh, we're happy that many more have found the Lord. But it's all someone else who does it. They're specialists. But it's a very solemn responsibility that rests not upon a preacher or, or preachers upon an evangelist or evangelists. It's a solemn responsibility that rests upon every single member of the body of Christ. If you've been saved, you have a very solemn responsibility. Having yourself been saved, this responsibility has been laid upon you. Uh, that you be involved in this burden of the heart of God to reach men and women, uh, with his saving grace and power to bring them in uh, to this uh, people whom he is forming, producing for the glory of his name. Now that's why I read that solemn passage in Ezekiel. And you've got it again in Ezekiel 3. 
as if the Lord was continually reminding uh, poor old Ezekiel uh, about this matter. In Ezekiel 3 and verse 17 uh, to um, uh, 21, we can't read it all, but it's virtually the same that we read earlier. He's saying to him, listen, if a wicked man dies and you knew my word, that if the wages of sin is death, I'm paraphrasing this, and you did not go and speak to that one, you were in contact with that person. In other words, it's, we're not talking about those you have no contact with, but those you, ha you have some uh, contact with, you therefore have responsibility for them. You did not speak to that one. That one will die and his sinner will be judged for his sin. But you are irresponsible. In other words, the law will require an account for this from your lips. How is it that you could have been saved by someone else speaking to you? Someone else praying for you? Someone else going out of their way for you? And you have not done the same for somebody else. There isn't a person in this room who in one way or another is not here as the result of another Christian. Someone prayed for us. Someone bothered for us. For myself, I had no one that I know of who prayed for us. But I know that when, in the most sovereign way, my sister and I came into touch uh, with a Baptist church, one man used to come every Sunday to collect us at quarter past one. And he always went without his Sunday lunch. He came for two years to collect my sister and I because I hated it. And I used to sometimes cry to try and persuade my parents uh, that we shouldn't go to this thing. But... My mother, although not at that time uh, disposed towards these things at all, used to say, if that man has gone without his lunch, it's the least thing you can do to go. For two years that man came. I never knew what happened to him. He was a Scotsman. I've been thankful for them ever since. Um, uh, he came every single Sunday without his meal in order to collect us and take us. And we were a real handful of trouble. <laughs> Not so much my sister, but I was. <laughs> and he persevered for two years until I got saved. And I never thanked him. Because I was only a youngster, I didn't think about it. It's only years afterwards I thought back and thought, that man, what that man did. He must have only, what a, I was... Ten years of age when he first started. He might have thought some silly little youngster. What's he worth? Persevering for him. Doesn't want to come. Kicks up a bit of a fuss when he does. And when he gets there, he dreams his way through the whole time. In the two years I was there, I didn't even learn the Lord's Prayer. That shows you how you can switch off. Um, uh, when you're in a place and you don't want to take anything. I never even learned the Lord's Prayer in the two years I was there. Although they said it every time I was there. Um, it just shows you. Well now, what I'm getting at is this. There's not a person here who has not in some way or another 
had someone uh, touched them in bringing them to Christ. Sometimes it was a life that was lived before our eyes. Sometimes it was a tact that was just given into our hands. Sometimes it was someone who knocked on the door. Sometimes it was someone who was working in the office. Sometimes I, it was a relative who got saved and we saw the change. But it, it, again and again it's been some contact, has it not? Of course it has. And therefore a solemn responsibility rests upon us that having received in such a wonderful way, we pass on, freely you have received, freely give. It's a great responsibility. It says in Proverbs 24 and verse 11, and I shall read this in the New American Standard Version, um, uh, uh, Proverbs chapter 24, verse 11 and 12 not too clear in the authorized version it's good in the revised version better still if you look in the revised version margin but here i'll read it here deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter oh hold them back if you say see we did not know this does he not consider it who weighs the hearts and does he not know it who keeps your soul and will he not render to a man according to his work? What a picture of those of this world tottering to the slaughter. The idea, of course, is, is of an abattoir, a slaughterhouse. And the whole world herding its way down to the slaughterhouse. And you could have bought somebody, that's the idea, ransom. You could have stepped in and, and saved someone rescued one of them going down to the slaughterhouse. You didn't do it. Didn't do it. And so he says, if you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? Solemn responsibility. It is possible to dwell upon the wonder of God's purpose, to be taken up with the need to go on with Christ, to enter into all that is ours and Him. It's possible to see and glory in the nature of the church and the need to be built up together and so on and so on and so on and forget this solemn responsibility. As if somehow or other this whole matter of soul winning is something which belongs to the lower levels of spiritual life. But however far we go on and however much we see, even if we're caught up to the third heaven and see things and hear things is not lawful to utter, still a solemn responsibility rests upon us in this matter of reaching men and women who do not know the Lord. Here is the need to win souls to Christ. We are answerable, accountable to the Lord for the dying multitudes all around us. Can we go before the judgment seat of Christ, never having discharged such a solemn responsibility. All kinds of scriptures come to me. The Apostle Paul connects these things in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 and verse 10 and 11. He says that we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And then he says, knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. 
And again, we find in his wonderful words in 1 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10, when he says, 19 and verse 20, when he says, Are ye not our crown and our glorying in the presence of Christ? To be able to go into the presence of Christ and say, Well, Lord, I wasn't much, but there's this and this and this one and that one and the other one. Praise God, it was your grace, but I was instrumental. You used me. Ah, glorying and crown. Philippians 4.1 is exactly the same. Ye are our crown and our joy, he says, in uh, the presence of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 1.14, he says the same thing. He's always talking about it. And all these uh, different companies and believers all over the place. So there is the need to win souls to Christ. And the second thing I'd just like to underline is the command to win souls to Christ. Everyone who's born of Christ is to be a soul winner. Engaged and involved in the work of bringing men and women to God. Not everyone is to be a preacher or an evangelist. But everyone is to be a vital link in the chain of soul winning. Now note very carefully just a few of the scriptures out of many that we could take. For instance, turn to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now, this commission was not given merely to eleven, to the eleven apostles, nor to a special servants of God who have unique ministries. It is the commission of Christ to the whole church. It is a commission in, in which every single born-again believer is involved. This work is the responsibility of every member of the body of Christ. Note also one other point about this. Make disciples. Now that puts a new complexion on soul winning. It's not just obtaining decisions. It's not just uh, producing conversions. It is making disciples. Soul winning is much more than just getting a person to the place where they decide for Christ. It's more, much more than that. It's making a disciple. And then look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But ye shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, or my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Every one of us is to be a witness. Not every one of us can be a preacher. Not every one of us can be an evangelist. Not every one of us can be a teacher or a pastor. But every one of us is a witness. Ye shall be witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is not an especial gift or a special, an especial class in the church. All by the power of the Holy Spirit are to be witnesses. Most of the 120 in that upper room upon whom the Holy Spirit came, we do not know. We know, I suppose, out of the whole 120, we know what? 15? Perhaps 15. Perhaps at the outside, 20 names. 
The other hundred, we don't know. They were just ordinary people. None of them became, as far as we know, great apostles. But every one of them became a witness. And that's what turned Jerusalem upside down. It wasn't just the eleven who stood up and preached. It was the fact that the whole lot were witnesses. And wherever they were, going out shopping, doing their housework, while they're looking after the children, they were living Christ, living Christ and gossiping the gospel. And the result was that everywhere there was a foment. The gospel went everywhere through these witnesses unto Christ. Note also, both in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth, this began at home. It wasn't a question of just praying for the poor benighted pagans on the other side of the earth, or putting a few coins in a box, and that was the end of the responsibility. Of course we should pray for the worldwide work of God. Of course we should support it with our gifts. But we must never make that an excuse for not going over the street to those who do not know Christ on the other side of the road. You shall be witnesses unto me. How can you be a witness unto him in the uttermost parts of the earth if you don't start in Jerusalem? You don't just take a plane, go off to Johannesburg, and as you step out there, you're a witness unto him. Some people seem to think that if they obey the commission of the Lord, the moment they step off the plane in some so-called pagan country, then that moment they become a missionary. But that's nonsense. You're either uh, a witness unto Christ here or, or not. You'll not be a witness there if you're not a witness here. So we start at home. That's an important point again. John 15, verse 16. I appointed you. Uh, ye did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that ye should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. Now this is also an interesting word, because the Lord did not say, I, I, I appointed you that ye should uh, grow and bear fruit, but that ye should go and bear fruit. And the whole emphasis of the word of God is to go, go, go. Now sometimes the going is only across the street. Sometimes the going is into the next door neighbor's uh, home. Sometimes the going is just a, a, a stone's throw, but it's going. Going all the time. It's not just staying and waiting, but going. Now, it is the sovereign purpose of God that every one of us should go and bear fruit. No one is excused, according to this chapter. Indeed, we're told that those that don't bear fruit are pruned out of the vine. It doesn't mean that they, may, they lose their salvation, but they certainly lose their inheritance. They lose their place in the bride of Christ. Mark chapter 1, verse 17. Follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. Following Christ will always involve us in his heart burden and thus in training to become fishers of men. He didn't say, follow me and I will make you lovely people. He didn't say, follow me and I will make you powerful servants of mine. He didn't say, follow me and I will make you fruitful. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Why? Why? 
Because far from this matter of being fishers of men, uh, far from it being a kindergarten matter, to be a fisher of men, you must be like your Lord in, in an ever-increasing manner. Otherwise, people soon spot the hypocrisy. We don't want anything to do with you. You've got to. To follow the Lord means that you've got to become conformed to him. Means that you've got to be fruitful. Means that you've got to know the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon you. Means that you must know the fruit of the Spirit in your life. It's the only way. In that way you can become a fish of men. That's why Mark makes this little difference of emphasis from Matthew and says, follow me and I will make you to become. Not I will make you fishers of men, but I will make you to become fishers of men. And then again there's another interesting little verse uh, in Jude 23. Uh, Jude, the little tiny letter of Jude, verse 23, which says this, And some save, snatching them out of the fire. And some save, it's a command. Some save, snatching them out of the fire. A little earlier, he's just said, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, and so on. So that's all the inward side of things, relationship with the Lord and with each other as believers. But then he says, save some of them, snatching them out of the fire. What does he mean? The command to all who are his to be the means of rescuing some who are in danger of eternal destruction. Now we ought also to note a number of other scriptures. For instance, John 17 verse 20. Um, only just in passing, we can't comment too much on these, but John 17, verse uh, 20. The Lord Jesus said, Neither for these only do I pray, but for them also that believe on me through their word. Isn't it wonderful? There is an apostolic succession, only it's not the apostolic succession that some believe in. But there is a true apostolic succession. And here is the apostolic succession. Everyone in this room who has believed, has believed when you go right back through the links, right the way of the chain, right the way through history, back to those first eleven who preached the word. We are those who believed on their word. And then those who followed, others believed on their word. And those on their word, and those on their word, and those on their word, and there's your apostolic succession. Isn't it wonderful? So here we are at the end of the age, and we uh, have this wonderful privilege that others might believe on our word. And so we're in this marvelous apostolic succession, this commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And then, of course, I thought of uh, Proverbs 11 and verse 30. Proverbs 11 and verse 30. Let everyone take good note of this, for God never wastes words. Here it is, verse 11, chapter 11, verse 30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. He that winneth souls is wise. Not just wise in taking souls, but wise because in the kingdom uh, he shall know the master's commendation. And this surely is what Daniel uh, heard from the mouth of God. In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3, it says, And they that are wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars for 
ever and ever. So if you want to shine as a star forever and ever, then your life must be uh, influential in turning people to righteousness. He that winneth souls is wise. It's wholly the work of God to commit, to, to convict, convince, convert, and save men and women. And yet in some wonderful way, he wants to use us in this work. Now the third point I want to make this evening is the way to win souls uh, to Christ. Now let's come to some of the practical side of it. The way to win souls to Christ. Note some of the examples we have in the New Testament. I'll only give you four examples and I want you to note three things in every one of these examples. First, John chapter 1 verse 40 to 42. One of the two that heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He findeth first his own brother, Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. He brought him unto Jesus. Um, then will you note three things? He findeth, he saith, he bringeth. I think you'd better switch that off, Kai, because it'll ruin the other. He findeth, he saith, he bringeth. He findeth, he saith, he bringeth him to Jesus. All right? Uh, John 1, uh, 45, verse 45, 46. Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law of the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said unto him, Come and see. Now you've got three things there. First, Philip findeth Nathanael. Secondly, he saith we have found unto him, We have found him, that is Christ. And thirdly, come and see. You've got the three things again. P uh, uh, Andrew found Peter, he saith to him, we have found the Messiah. He bringeth him to Jesus. Exactly the same here with Philip. He findeth Nathaniel, he saith unto him, we have found him, Christ. Come and see. He brings him to Jesus. John chapter 4, um, verse 28 to 30. This is the woman of Samaria. She left her water pot, went away into the city, and saith to the people, Come, see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the city and were coming to him. And in verse 39 to 42, it says, They all said to her, Now we believe, because, not because just of you, but because we have seen him. Now you've got the same three things again. She went to the city. She found the people. She says to them, I have found the Messiah. She brings them to Jesus. If you turn now to Acts chapter 8, now we have a, a very interesting one. From verse 26 to 35. Now I can't read that, it's too long. But we have the same three things again. For here we have the story of Philip, the evangelist, and his being led to the Ethiopian eunuch. Now you will see there are four things here 
First of all, verse 26, an angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go. Uh, verse um, uh, 29, the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. Verse 30, Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture preached unto him Jesus. First of all, he found the man by the Spirit of God. Secondly, he spoke to the man. Uh, and thirdly, he introduced him to Jesus. He preached to him Jesus. You've got the same three things again. Now, in these examples, we discover three basic fundamentals in soul winning. First, he findeth. Secondly, he saith, we found the Messiah. Thirdly, he bringeth him to Jesus. Now, let's just look at these because here are the three very simple fundamentals in soul winning. Without these three, there can be no soul winning. You can read a million books on technique and everything else. You'll never get anywhere until you get these three basic uh, uh, points settled. He findeth. You've got to find the people. Nowhere in the whole Bible do they just sit there and wait for them to come. You've got to find the people. It's so simple. You've got to find them. The very first thing that Andrew did was he went and found his brother. Now here is the interesting thing. He knew where his brother was. He didn't sit there like some of them saying, Oh, now, where shall I be led? He went straight like a bee to honey. He went straight to his brother. His big brother. And he said to his brother, we found the Christ. Bring him to Jesus. Found his brother. Nathaniel must have, uh, Philip must have had a soft spot for Nathaniel, I suppose. He found Nathaniel. He went down and found him. And said, come. I found Christ. Cool, said Nathaniel. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Come and see, said Philip. That changed Nathaniel's life. Whole life was changed. It's the same with all of them. You, do, you, can, you don't just wait for them miraculously to appear. You must find them. So all this sitting on your behinds in meetings, there's so many Christians uh, are involved in all over the world. It's, it's really so sad. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm not against the meetings. It says, for Satan, the assembling of yourselves together. It's the manner of some is. So much the more as you see that day approaching. But God help us if by sitting on our behinds in a meeting we think we're doing the Lord a service. We're there to get food. We're there to share Christ. We're there to build up one another. But our whole job must be to find people. Pray each day that the Lord will lead you to one soul at least to whom you can witness. Don't be afraid. Just pray and relax. If he doesn't lead you in that day, okay. Relax. Don't get all into tension and strain and say, I must, I did. I, I had this great uh, uh, affair and in the School of Oriental African Studies, my word, they were frightened to death of me. Um, I used to always get a whole section of the student room to myself. Uh, they were so frightened of me because I used to buttonhole people in and, and really give them the gospel, you know. And, oh, it went right through the whole college. Everyone knew 
uh, that I was a religious fanatic, going to be a missionary, and because uh, they didn't know that I'd got it all out of Wesley's journal about getting one person a day, you know, and giving them the gospel. But uh, I certainly found them, but all oh, the tension and strain in my witnessing, it was, it was terrible. It was all to do with things. It wasn't the Lord. It was all to do with things. And the whole end was to invite them to a meeting, you know. Uh, however, I just mentioned that. Pray each day that the Lord will lead you to one soul at least to whom you can witness. And then rest in the Lord and enjoy the Lord and be normal. Don't sort of go around like some sort of uh, uh, shark waiting to, for your fish to devour. Um, just relax, just relax. Because half the problem with Christians is they become so eccentric. It's not only nuts and lettuce and all that kind of thing, you know, of queer ideas they get, but you see, they, they, they become so queer in themselves. And this is the thing the world spots instantly. Someone who's a, an eccentric. Now, there are eccentrics who get saved. And their eccentricity gets uh, sort of sanctified. And sometimes ironed out a bit. But um, God help us and preserve us from becoming eccentrics. Uh, just, for the, just because we've become Christians. Um, now, these opportunities will usually and normally be in the way of your routine life and work. And this is a point that most people forget. You see, we're all waiting for some dramatic intervention of God where suddenly someone stumbles across our path and there we've got our opportunity. There they lie gasping. Oh, how can I find the Lord? You know, the kind of thing. Oh, of course, you don't. You wouldn't say it like that, but that's how many people imagine these opportunities come. Suddenly in a train, someone sinks onto their knees in the compartment and says, Oh, that I might find God. And you're just there, <laughs> ready to lead them to the Lord. I mean, because we laugh about it, but this is the idea many of us have got about these opportunities. But quite honestly, the finding of these people is all normally in the, our routine life and work. We shall find them where we work, where we live, in the normal course. Uh, Andrew knew where to find Peter. Probably something to do with the fishing boats and nets. Andrew was himself a fisherman. It was all part of, the, of his circumstances. So he went to look for him. So, you see, um, uh, be on the lookout for these opportunities. You see, they're all there in your office. They're all there in your home. They're all there amongst your neighbours. They're all there in the people you rub shoulders with day by day. If we would only not be turned off on this matter, so that we just don't expect any opportunities along this line. Only something vivid and sensational and dramatic could be an opportunity from God. Wake up! Why has God put you in that office? Why has God put you in that college? There must be there the people he wants you to speak to, the people he wants you to reach. So be expectant. First ask the Lord. Give me the opportunity. Secondly, ex be expectant. Expect the opportunity. Most people just don't expect. Be expectant. When the opportunity comes, take it by faith. There's no other way to take it. 
You'll never take it by feeling. If you do, you'll just feel some iron hand mm, right over you. Never, never, never. Faith is the only answer. When the opportunity comes, it's a split mo moment decision you've got to take. And this is where many of us fail. Because as the, we did that, we did that. We've prayed for the opportunity. Here is the opportunity. Take it by faith. And the Holy Spirit will help you. And be with your mouth. Be ready to go out fishing or door-to-door -door visiting or any other form of personal work. All this is part of finding people. And if you are only ready to believe that there in your normal routine life, you will have the opportunities, God will start to give you the more unusual ones. Where you will suddenly meet somebody in the most wonderful way. But only when you're ready, like Gideon, to do proper work at the right time, in the right place. Be alive there. Keep abreast with the news. This may seem very strange to some of you. But when these Christians don't even know uh, that an earthquake has wiped out a whole city, or that some terrible typhoon, a hurricane, has destroyed whole area. It is an amazement to people in this world. Here's someone walking with God who's supposed to have a heart of compassion and they don't even know that 60,000 people lost their lives last night. And when you tell them, they say, oh really? Oh well of course in Matthew 23 it says that's going to happen. Don't expect people to be moved by your little bit of soul winning on this matter. They would be much more moved if they heard that you'd heard the news and you'd prayed for those bereaved and that you were genuinely moved and disturbed. Now, of course, we can't be disturbed by everything or we'd all be uh, in mental homes. <laughs> uh, half of us are nearly on the brink anyway. Uh, but the fact of the matter is we've got to be careful of this. We can't just take everything on, but do keep abreast with the news and read a newspaper, uh, not in place of your Bible, but uh, in addition to your reading of the Word of God, if you only scan the headlines, it's something. And if you feel it's too much to look at a newspaper, turn on the news just once a day, the BBC News, Radio 4, and just get uh, the uh, clear... Uh, uh, news from one of our broadcasters. That's all. Keep abreast with the news. Know what people are talking about. What is concerning them. It's amazing. You can't win people if you don't know what's concerning them. Everyone's talking about a certain matter. And here comes some dear believer. They don't know the first thing about it or anything else. Everyone, they're all over the place. All in the office. Everywhere. They're all talking about it. And here waltzes in a dear little believer. Like a whiff from another um, sort of realm. I mean, you can't expect people uh, to be one. You see, what they will say is this. They will say, oh, well, so-and-so's temperamentally that way. He was born like that. She was born like that. And that's what they will say, and they'll write you off. Because you're not in touch with things, so keep in touch. Not only find the people, understand them. 
And you can't understand them unless you know the kind of things that are concerning them and are disturbing them and so on. Now, there is quite an important point because often when we come in, we've got a heart that feels and so on. There's so much that we can do. The great point is to find the people. Sometimes we are waiting for something dramatic to happen, whereas it's so often right on our doorstep uh, that the need is to be found. Now, this finds us all out, finds me out, finds you out. Uh, it's right on our doorstep. And yet we're waiting for something marvellous to happen uh, where we're going to be used of God to bring someone uh, to the Lord. The need's all there. Um, pray for the people you're in daily or regular contact with. Some of them uh, may then be laid as a burden on your heart. Especially pray for those and look to God for the opportunity. Do you understand what I'm getting at? First of all, pray for the whole office in general. Pray for people, all of them. Pray for them regularly. And you will find that certain ones will get laid on your heart. Pray for those very especially. And begin to pray that the opportunity may be given to you. To really witness to those people. <coughs> Above all, let Christ do a real work in you. Show love to people in practical ways. Take a genuine interest in them. When you hear that someone's bereaved in the office, take an interest in them. Don't smother them, but drop them a line or, or send them a card or a, some flowers or something. If you only show an interest uh, again. Instead, many of us Christians, we live busy lives and we get all tied up. And the only thing we're known for is spouting scripture. And there's nothing worse, of course, when something tragic happens and someone says, well, of course, the Bible says, surely the soul that sinneth it shall die. Now, of course, that's extreme, but that's the kind of thing that sometimes happens. People think they're doing the work of God in this country. Well, you're not doing the work of God at all. Far, far better to keep your big mouth shut and send a bunch of flowers or write a little note. And don't necessarily bring in the others, except that you're praying for them. Just pray. And that you know a God who can draw near to people when they're in trouble. That's all you need to say. You don't need to say any more. That can mean more to a person than a thousand sermons at such a time. Show real interest in people. Bake a cake for them. Uh, ask them out to a meal. Do some job for them. I came across this... They won't meet with everybody's approval, but I came across this um, comment by a well-known theologian. In his holy flirtation with the world, God occasionally drops a handkerchief. These handkerchiefs are called saints. And that's very, very true. When he's seeking to reach somebody, it's just as if he drops a handkerchief. These handkerchiefs are saints. Would to God that every one of us was that kind of Christian. Then the second thing here is, he saith, we have found the Christ. He saith, we have found the Christ. Having found the people, what do you do next? Testify to Christ. Do not preach unless you are so gifted, and even then not in a personal, uh, not in personal work. The secret of witness is so simple. 
Now, many people are fighting to death of witnessing because they think they've got to get a whole rigmarole of kind of catechism out uh, in, a, in, 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 a, in a, uh, a little conversation. But, oh, the simplicity of witnessing. We have found the Christ. Or even Philip's way. Understandest thou what thou read? What thou readest? There's nothing superior about it. Do you understand what you're reading? <laughs> the very humble man he was, the Ethiopian eunuch, for he said, No, I don't. Can you help me? It's a prepared heart. Uh, it seems to me that it's so simple this. We have found the Christ. We have found him. Come and see. Even the very words are almost monosyllabic. So simple is witnessing. To be a witness, you must have first-hand experience. That can't be second-hand, you've got to be first-hand. You yourself have met Christ. You yourself have known him, been saved and kept by him. Witness to him out of your own experience. Speak to people naturally. Better to stumble over words Speak poorly, even dry up halfway through, and be yourself, then word perfect and artificial. There's nothing more terrible than this wonderfully well-oiled type of thing, you know, that people can go in for with. Word perfect, but never gets anything done. But you know, I've known people dry right up in the middle of testimony, and yet it's the person has been broken <coughs> right down and brought to the Lord. It's simply a matter of reality. Um, some words concerning Christ in a personal way are worth more than many tracts and many sermons. The great danger in all personal work is slick salesmanship. So that we give the impression that we're just a kind of salesman of something. Uh, becoming biblical parrots is another great danger. Or track machines. That's the third great danger. God doesn't want machinery and he doesn't just want uh, a kind of parrot fashion uh, giving of scripture. He wants human beings saved by his grace. And his, the principle is that, a, that flesh and blood touches flesh and blood. And... Uh, well, again, of course, I, I've told many of you the story of the lad years ago who went to a um, conference not far from here, um, run by a very well-known evangelist who used to run very big meetings up in town, and he was very enthused about the whole time and uh, got more and more enthusiastic, but he was such a nervous boy. He, he used to just go deep red the moment he thought of witnessing to anybody. So finally he went and talked with one or two of them, and they said, well, look here, um, Joe or Jack or whatever his name was, they said, um, uh, you've got to go early from, from this time. We'll pray now that you get the victory. The first person, you're going by train, aren't you? Yes, he said. Well, the first person you meet on that train, you're going to speak to. Why? Yes, he said, yes. So he said, well, we'll pray for you. And uh, uh, off he went, train came in, opened the carriage, got in. It's one of those, not corridor ones, but compartment. There was some sp older spinster sitting on the other side uh, who delicately looked out of the window. 
and the lad got more and more sort of worked up as he thought of what could he say, how he could witness to her. And then finally, as he went deep red, it came up like fingers all over his face. He blurted out as the train went into a tunnel, Are you ready to die? <laughs> she shrieked, jumped up and pulled the emergency cord to stop the whole train. Now that is a true story. <laughs> she did not get saved. <laughs> All the suffering was to no avail. So do be careful. Uh, don't just use uh, hackneyed terms that may have been used by others. Um, just remember to be normal. That's one of the big things. To be witnesses to Christ is so very simple. I found him. Such simplicity, spoken through faith and in the power of God, is spiritually effective. Remember just a few matters now about this speaking. Seth, we've found the Christ. We need a sensitiveness of approach that wins a person naturally first. Now, here is a very, very important point. Before you can win a person spiritually, you have to win them naturally. And this is where most Christians fail. We need a sensitiveness of approach. Not, not timidity in a wrong way, but sensitiveness of approach. Always be courteous. Rudeness and crudeness are quite unnecessary. Bluntness often puts people on the defensive straight away. Uh, or any of that kind of know-all attitude. Think, for instance, of John chapter 4 and verse 7. How did the Lord win the woman of Samaria? Do you know how he began? He could have begun by saying, Oh, you are a sinner. How many marriages have you had? Don't you know it's wrong? No, no. Do you know what he said? He said, could you give me a drink? And that's the opening of a conversation that led that woman to Christ. Uh, you find it again uh, in uh, uh, Luke uh, 19 and verse 5. You remember Zacchaeus? The Lord could have said all kinds of things to Zacchaeus, but what he said to him, he said to Zacchaeus, will you come down? I'd like to come to your home and stay with you. Now, that, I think, immediately shows, it's a sensitiveness of approach. You get a person naturally first. Um, I think that's very, very important. Secondly, the grace with which we speak is often much more important than our words. Do remember this. Let your conversation be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Satan often seeks to get us to lose our temper or become irritated or nasty. I remember some, uh, some uh, years ago, we had a girl who went out fishing. She insisted on going fishing, and we had such a headache, we had to stop her in the end because she used to get into l'auberge, uh, get into a great conversation, and then lose her temper uh, with everybody. Well, I'll call them then, you know, flaring, angry, and, well, of course, I mean, of course, it's exactly what they loved. It's exactly what they wanted be able to sort of upset uh, some dear Christian in such a way that they behaved in a totally non-Christian manner. 
Now do be careful of this. The grace with which we speak is much more important than our words. There, there can, however, always be absolute frankness with absolute grace. We can be outwitted and still the person we speak to can be one to Christ. Now do remember this. I've known many people outwitted, but because of the grace of the person who was seeking to speak to them, they have been won to Christ. Uh, do not forget, you can lose the argument, but you can win the discussion. In the end, you can win, even though you lose. <laughs> I remember some years ago when two went to a house at the top of the hill and a man took them in and argued and argued and argued and argued and argued and argued. And one of them said to me, I'd never go out house to house again in my life. It was this message by Lance is continued on the next tape in the Life in the Local Church series entitled Outreach Soul Winning.